There is no such thing as a separate self. You know, an individual does not exist in isolation from anything else in the world. That individual is a holistic being, a multifaceted being, and that being is always in relation. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Jamie Anderson, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers alike. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and Everactive Schools. Each episode, we speak with expert guests to talk about different topics related to school-based health promotion. And I'm so thrilled to be joined by Dr. Carly Fellner, the founder of Muskegee Wellness and an associate professor at the University of Calgary. Our conversation with Dr. Fellner will be released in two parts. Today, we are going to be chatting about culture as a source of mental and spiritual well-being. And Dr. Carly Fellner has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with us. Before we begin, I'd like to situate our conversation in the land. This episode is being recorded in the virtual space, but of course, Dr. Fellner and I are both in Mokinstis, which is the traditional and ancestral territories of the Blackfoot, including Siksiga, Gaina, Bigani, as well as the Sutina Nation and the Iahe Nakoda Nations of Chiniki, Bearspaw, Wesley. And of course, we're also in the ancestral territories of the Métis Nation of Alberta. We express our gratitude to the elders, the knowledge keepers, the land, language, and water protectors from the past, those who are in the present, and those young ones as well who are in the making today. As we think about decolonizing our classrooms, decolonizing curriculum, it's important for us to think about starting at the place of relationship, specifically relationship to the land and to one another. And I know that we use the language of decolonization a lot in our pre-service teacher education programs, but we also want to think about what that actually looks like in practice. And I think a place to start is challenging how colonization has shaped the view that the land is a resource for us. What we need to shift our paradigms around is understanding that the land is not a resource, but rather is a teacher, is a relative. And I'm not sure that we can tend to our own well-being in these areas without examining our relationship to the land, individually and collectively, and how we might work to restore and heal through better ways of being in that relationship. And I think in our conversation with Dr. Fellner, we'll be able to tackle that a little bit more. Now, just a reminder for our listeners that podcasts are portable, and we really encourage you to take this time while you're listening to attend to your wellness, do something for your physical well-being, or maybe, you know, uh, multitask and, and take care of some chores while you're at it. Whatever makes sense for you, please go ahead and do that. And maybe to get us started in our conversation today, Dr. Carly Feller, if you wouldn't mind by starting us off by sharing some of your own go-to habits to tend to your well-being. So for me, everything comes back to the land. The land has inherent balancing mechanisms within it. So it's always self-healing. And as human beings, we are also self-healing and have access to our personal medicine in relation, in this case with the land, at any given moment. 
So we're deeply interconnected with the land. It comprises our bones, our organs, the water in our body. And so my wellness practices are really about going to the land. Some ways that that shows up for me on a daily basis are by smudging and cleansing with certain plant medicines, ideally in accordance with sun and moon cycles. Or physically, it's about getting out for hikes and walks. In getting out in that way, just noticing and taking in the medicines of the plant and animal relatives around me, of the land, the water, and the air. Um, And there's all kinds of other ways that shows up for me as well, which I'll speak more about in our conversation today. Awesome. Thanks. What a, what a beautiful introduction to our conversation and, and reminder. Well, Dr. Carly Fellner, thank you for joining us on the podcast. We're so thrilled to have you. Now, your work is incredibly impactful and extensive, and I feel like I could take a whole episode to talk about everything that you do and all of your contributions, but I'll, I'll make it short and sweet before I invite you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about yourself. But you're currently a registered provisional psychologist an associate professor at the Workman School of Education, and you're also the founder and CEO of Maskiki Wellness, which uses both traditional and contemporary Indigenous and land-based approaches to holistic wellness to support individuals, families, communities, and organizations. And that's only a small part of your work. Your PhD research also focused on shifting practices of health services to empower traditional Indigenous approaches to wellness and better serve Indigenous peoples, And this research also led you to co-create two interdisciplinary Masters of Education programs at the Workland School of Education called Bo Migapi Nitsitapi Approaches to Wellness and Nitsitapi Simi, Real People's Way of Life. Two incredible programs that are shaping how pre-service educators and health providers are providing services here in Southern Alberta. With that introduction, (laughs) very limited, I'm hoping that you can introduce yourself, tell us a little bit more about your work and how you've come to take up just this incredible work supporting health promotion through education, culture, and ceremony. So I'm going to begin by introducing myself in the way I've been taught in my language, in the Cree language, as well as the languages that I have received names in. So Tanse Chante Hawashne Wia Natsigasan, Miote Esqueo Natsigasan, Carly Fellner Munya Wikwin, Devon Alberta Otinia, Oki Nistoni Taniko Katoyesaki. So I introduce myself in the traditional names I've received. The first is Good Hearted Woman, and that was originally given to me in the Dakota language um, when I was helping with a ceremony just over nine years ago, which I now participate in. And the second name that I was given uh, is a Blackfoot name, Sweet Pine Woman, which I was given just over two years ago down in Amskapitikani in a ceremony just south of the border in Montana. I grew up in the small town of Devon, Alberta, which is just southwest of Edmonton, about 20 minutes or so. Um, My family moved there when I was one year old. I was actually born in Camrose, which is southeast of Edmonton, and which is located about 15 minutes away from where our family's script land was issued around the Round Hill region. 
So most recently, my family comes from Beaver Lake, but we were removed from there through Métis script. And therefore, I grew up in central Alberta and away from my family's home community. So growing up in Devon, I actually didn't grow up with knowledge of my traditions of, you know, the Cree language or, or Métis language or our traditional cultural practices. However, when I did start to connect and to learn, I realized that I really was raised with a lot of our traditional values. Those were very, very much instilled in our family and taught by me through my Nana, my grandmother, um, Sharon Roos, who really was like a, a second mother to me. And I kind of see her as behind a lot of this <laughs> in a lot of ways. I actually really started connecting with my indigeneity and who I am as an Indigenous woman and, you know, in relation to culture and language and our teachings and land. Ironically, when I moved away from my people's ancestral territories to Vancouver to do my PhD in 2010, you know, and at the time, my Nana, my grandmother was still alive and she was just so excited when I really started to delve in. And that really happened as a result of being in counseling psychology and realizing the myriad issues within the field in relation to working with Indigenous people and communities. And I knew that I wanted to do work that was going to improve mental health services with Indigenous people. And I knew that in order to do that work, I really needed to do my own work. So I'm really grateful that while I was out there on the coast, I was able to connect with elders and mentors there who really welcomed me into to learning about these traditions of my own people, of my Indigenous ancestors. And through that experience of starting to attend ceremony, of starting to attend cultural events, of starting to learn the Cree language, I experienced my own healing and my own balancing and wellness that I didn't even realize was missing or that I needed. And it's changed my life. At the same time that I was undertaking work in this area to begin to explore, you know, how do we shift mental health services and health services more broadly to better serve Indigenous people, I was also going through my own personal experience of what it meant to receive mental, emotional, spiritual, physical support through culturally based approaches and through Indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing. And came to understand, you know, the deep power of these ways. And I am forever grateful that the way that I understand it is that the creator brought me there. The creator took me there so that I was able to meet those teachers and mentors, those elders that I was meant to connect with, to move me into this path, which is really the path of my ancestors. And, you know, I remember when I started 
connecting my Nana, my, my grandma was just so excited. She was so happy and she would begin to share more stories with me about her mom and about her grandma as well. Her grandma was a a traditional Cree midwife that had a lot of knowledge of the plant medicines and, and different kind of healing modalities. And it was just amazing for us to connect in that way for the last four years of her life. Unfortunately, she was diagnosed with cancer in 2012 and she passed in 2014. But I know that she's continued to be with me since. And so, you know, I really see what I do today and and all of those things that you mentioned and all of the other things that around them as deeply connected to her and also deeply connected through that matrilineal lineage in my family is all through the women that have held those teachings and those medicines. As I was engaging in my academic work, was engaging in this personal work at the same time, and then it all just kept growing and growing. And so, you know, one of my mentors, Alana Young-Leon, she also connected me with Indigenous Focusing Oriented Therapy. So I took that training in 2013. um, And that was life changing, because it's the only approach to psychotherapy that I know of, that is fully articulated from conceptualization through intervention, through Indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing. And of course, you know, these are knowledges that are collective, they belong to our communities, they're ancestral. And so a lot of Indigenous psychologists or counselors or social workers, different helpers and service providers are already practicing very much that way. And when they take the training, it's very familiar to them. Um, But for me, it was just, it was amazing, because it was so different than what I had learned in my conventional education and counseling psychology. So, so that also opened up another path. And then (laughs) I ended up um, for my internship, being matched with the Indian Health Board in Minneapolis, there was so few Indigenous sites, and I ended up being there. And that was just yet Another place that really opened up my learning and this work for me because, you know, I was in the middle of writing up my dissertation work, which was focusing on transforming mental health services for Indigenous people. And I was doing that research at the same time as I'm working directly in Indigenous mental health service provision and having that same experience again of the critical importance of culture and our traditional teachings and languages in wellness. It's really just been this journey where I have been pulled to where I was meant to be. I really understand it that way. I've at various points in time, I've had dreams that explicitly showed me where I was meant to go, including Calgary, actually, in my position at the University of Calgary. So yeah, it's just kind of like these avenues have opened up to do this work and really bringing forward our traditional knowledges. And and I see education as a really powerful place to do that work as well, because it's been a place that's been a site of colonialism, you know, historically and continues to be often. And that was my experience, you know, both in grade school, when I look back and reflect on it, I see how colonizing it was, 
you know, one of the things I can use as an example is I remember at a young age, I used to love doing artwork and I would draw all the time. And, and I remember, you know, around the age of nine or 10, just learning that I wasn't an artist because I didn't fit into the conventional frames that were brought forward in my educational experience. And so I actually dropped art completely at the age of nine or 10 and focused on academics because that's what I was taught was of value. And because honestly, I didn't want to draw and shade an apple. (laughs) I wanted, I wanted to creatively express myself, you know, and so that's just one example of how colonialism played into my experience. But another is the suppression and oppression of my spirituality. You know, I remember learning about science and moving into high school and then into undergraduate education, learning from a what I didn't know at the time was a positivist slash post-positivist scientific frame that told me, you know, that the only thing that's real in life are things that you can sense with your physical senses and that are measurable and observable. And I really became ingrained in that for a long time. I considered myself to be a spiritual and I just didn't really believe in, in any sort of spirituality and, and certainly not in religion either. And I remember when people used to ask me the one thing I always felt and that I always acknowledged was a connection with land. So I remember people would ask me if I was religious or spiritual, and I would say, no, I'm not. But I do feel something when I'm in the Rocky Mountains that I can't explain. <laughs> and so that's interesting because I hadn't yet connected with, you know, Indigenous teachings and culture and that sort of explicit knowledge. And yet my body knew and understood that connection with land. So I had a lot of those experiences of colonialism and then, of course, moving into graduate education. And when I really started to bring forward Indigenous ways of knowing and being and doing is having that met at different points in time with varied levels of resistance or uh, oppression. (laughs) It's just inherent, you know, in the colonial system and it's just part of it. And so having had all of that experience and then this connecting and healing and balancing through culture and ceremony and my spirituality, which I saw as almost a returning full circle to how I experienced the world as a child, because as a child, I I believed in all of that. My Nana used to talk to me about spirits and I believed all of it. And then as I became colonized through my education, I used to think she was crazy. And then to come and see, wait a minute, that's what my profession does to people. Psychology, you know, labels people as crazy when they talk about what is really authentically Indigenous knowledge. And this is something that's taken place since contact, right? So it's kind of a long story. That's really what's brought me to where I am today and really helps motivate me to say we can learn science and teach science coming from that particular conventional Euro-Western kind of perspective alongside all of these other ways of knowing and being. And that's epistemic pluralism, right? The acknowledgement that there is far more than one way of knowing and experiencing and understanding the world. I'm really embracing that and nurturing it 
and knowing that that is actually a strength and diversity is a strength and that we can learn all of these ways beside each other. That's such a beautiful story. And thank you so much for sharing about your journey and about your learning. And I think the themes that have landed for me are about like reciprocity and how you're taking up this work in relationship and reciprocity, which is really powerful, important. And I think, you know, even though you're speaking from a profession like psychology, and I think really speaks to our audience of in-service and pre-service teachers too, especially when you were talking about being in a space of colonizing, I think the education systems can't be separated from their histories on Turtle Island and in residential schools. Like those legacies are ever present. And, you know, there's lots of work that needs to be done to challenge those colonial ways of knowing and being that seek towards epistemic violence, as you mentioned, and erasure. So thank you for your introduction and thank you for situating our conversation in that. And I think that leads to my next question, which speaks about well-being, because often well-being is situated through Western colonial constructs. In this course, we often refer to multiple dimensions of wellness, which could include things like physical, emotional, social, spiritual, uh, intellectual wellness, you know, occupational wellness, environmental, so on and so forth. And we parse those dimensions up really different as though they're separate things and disparate things. But we know that that's not the case. And we also know that teachings have been around for millennia that precede these Western colonial constructs. What comes to mind for me is uh, medicine wheel teachings, but I know that there are many other teachings that speak to well-being. And I also want to couch this in knowledge. You know, I've, I've been taught that not all teachings can be shared outside of community. So I understand that not everything can be shared or, or needs to be shared uh, with this particular audience in this particular way. So I will just preface with that. But I'm wondering if you might share with us teachings about well-being, either through the lens of the medicine wheel or however you would like. So I'm glad that you asked about the medicine wheel, um, just because, you know, for me, it's really important to locate that as a contemporary conceptual framework. And that's just the way that I've been taught, you know, that it's a useful tool that can help us begin to understand some aspects of Indigenous ways of knowing. But I did want to say that explicitly just to ensure to distinguish the medicine wheel as a framework from Indigenous cultures that have ancient teachings about what is now referred to as the medicine wheel. So those teachings are nation-specific, and just like you've said, they're sometimes not meant to be shared outside of communities. It's just referring to how I understand this as a contemporary model and a tool that's used to teach more broadly about Indigenous ways of knowing. So one of the ways that I understand the medicine wheel as a model or framework for wellness is it's typically depicted with four quadrants. And those four quadrants represent four aspects of the self, which are often mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical. And being in the circle in that way really just depicts how these aspects of self are interconnected and that wellness is really about balance and harmony. And so I do use this framework in my work to show the holistic self. But what's important in addition is that that holistic self and holistic wellness is understood in relation 
through an indigenous perspective and through various indigenous perspectives, we understand that there is no such thing as a separate self. You know, an individual does not exist in isolation from anything else in the world. That individual is a holistic being, a multifaceted being, and that being is always in relation. So at any given moment, we are interconnected with our families, with our communities, with our nations, with the societies that we're a part of, with the wider world as a whole. And we are also interconnected with land, with water, with air, with the cosmos, the stars, the planets, with all of creation with animals, with insects, with bacteria, and on and on and on. And also with metaphysical beings, other than human or more than human beings, as they're sometimes referred to, but also acknowledging that interconnection with various different forms of life and energies, and that we are also connected through time. So as you mentioned in your opening, you know, the connection that we have with our ancestors and with our descendants. And so when we speak about wellness, it's about more than just, say, looking at what am I doing today for my emotional wellness? What am I doing today for my spiritual wellness? What am I doing today for physical wellness? Yes, that's important. And it's also so much more than that, because our wellness is always in relation And so there are many ways to understand that. One way is knowing that we take on the energies of others that we're connected with. If there's something going on in our family, for instance, some kind of hardship or difficulty or someone in our family is suffering, we're going to feel that and we're going to carry a part of that. You know, we even hear stories all the time about someone was across the world from their relative and they felt when something happened to their relative. But it's that understanding um, that we are always connected. And so wellness is also a part of our networks. And what that means for us as well is that our personal wellness then becomes the collective wellness. So if I am in relation with one who is suffering, you know, I might try to support them, but sometimes we can only do so much or sometimes there's nothing we can do. That's part of life that we face hardship, we face challenges and difficulties and um, and hurts and pains and traumas. And there's really actually no way to avoid that in life. We all experience it to some degree. And there is an importance of moving through that. And so the best thing that we can do often at any given time when we've offered what we can is to take care of ourselves, to look after our own wellness, because that is also collective. And the more that we foster and nurture our own balance and harmony in relation, the more that others in our network will feel that. So I really think about, you know, this concept of the medicine wheel as being three-dimensional plus, right? It's like the holistic self, but it's in relation and it's through the generations. You know, one of the things I talk about is one way that something ancestral can show up is, for instance, you know, you might have a child, and I've seen this in practice, you might have a child who, for all intents and purposes, has had a a really good life to date, they haven't experienced any direct traumas, 
but they walk into a school for the first time and they may start getting activated. They might start having what become labeled as behaviors. I'm always careful to qualify it as being labeled as because it's a very colonial practice to pathologize our children, to place deficit on our children and, and say that there's something wrong with them. And coming from Indigenous perspectives, we can actually understand that whatever is coming forward through a child is actually a conversation. And that applies to us as well as adults. <laughs> this can go through the lifespan, but I'm going to stick with my example. So you have a child coming into a school and say, they start lashing out, they start talking back, and they don't want to listen. And sometimes they throw things because they get frustrated. And this child has never engaged in anything like this prior to walking into that school. And so what that might actually be is an ancestor who perhaps attended residential schools, or maybe even escaped them. But that could be this ancestor coming through and saying, there is something in this environment that is out of balance. There's something here that is not healthy and in harmony and wellness that needs to be addressed. And, or it could be a future generation coming through that child, a future generation that sees the way that things are being done in that environment. And that says, I don't want to come into that. So I'm going to come forward with this conversation, right? So it's coming to understand the conversations that move through time. So that's one of the ways to have a sense of that intergenerational wellness and the intergenerational messages that come forward as well. So we have to work with what's in front of us in the moment. And that's been a lot of my work to date with schools is what do we do when these conversations are coming through children? Because it's not, in my perspective, and in broader Indigenous perspectives, it's not about individual pathology or deficit or targeting that child for individual intervention, because we don't understand that child as an individual. That child is in relation to all of their relatives and to that immediate environment that they're in. And so the wellness very much also becomes part of that environment and creating wellness and good medicine within that environment. And this is where I see tremendous possibility for schools and educational institutions to be sites of healing and wellness and balancing, because historically and to this day, they have been sites of colonialism and oppression at times. And it's good to see that's beginning to shift. But again, we're just really in the beginning stages. So that's kind of a long answer to, to talking about the medicine wheel and well-being, but it really opens that conversation about what wellness is about and also what these collective and intergenerational conversations are about that show up, you know, as anger or anxiety or shutting down or many other ways that they show themselves. Oh, that's so incredible. The first of all, it's really helpful how you preface that conversation because thinking about education and thinking about trying to decolonize education, often we think that just means replacing one thing with another as though that's it. Like, oh, if we just change these dimensions of wellness or re replace it with a different framework, different paradigm, then that's it. And and I really appreciate you sharing that it's it's far beyond that. And I think as we work to decolonize and, and indigenize the learning that's taking place in schools, 
we have to do the work, right? And, and I think you drew on that in your first conversation is doing that work internally uh, as well. I really appreciated how you framed the connection between individual and collective well-being. And not, sorry, not how you framed it, because it's more than that. It's understanding that there is no such thing as an individual. Again, such a colonial construct of individuals and then further trying to parse out different aspects of ourself as though we can easily disentangle those things. So I'm going to use the language of spirituality because you touched on it a little bit earlier, but I also recognize that all of those parts of our wellness are bound together. We can't separate just those strands. Um, But I want to talk about spirituality a little bit more because I think that's an area of well-being that many teachers, myself included, struggle with supporting in our classrooms. And and I think you uh, talked about that in your experience as well. I think we often conflate the idea of spirituality with religious beliefs, and it's so much more. So, you know, given that your work draws on intentional connections between land-based learning, ceremony, and spiritual well-being, can you tell us more about these connections and the importance of land in that and also spirituality, what that looks like, and how we as educators can ensure that we're nurturing that spirituality and not crushing that spirituality? To me, that conflation of spirituality with religion is such a product of colonialism. The roots of that can be traced. The whole separation of spirituality and the state and all of that stuff, you know, that's a much bigger conversation. So I'm glad that you brought that up because it's just something that's so important to acknowledge that this is colonial. So to me, spirituality is really what I've been speaking about this whole time so far. It's about connecting with one sense of interconnectedness to the universe and to all of creation. You know, a few times I've mentioned that creator brought me to this place or creator pulled me in this direction. And that's not how spirituality needs to manifest, right? That's how I understand it. But others may think of God, or they may have different figures that they understand their relationship with, or it may be the universe as a whole. You hear people talk about this is happening in the universe or the planets and things like that. And so those specifics aren't as important. It's really about, like I say, that interconnection and that sense of connectedness to the universe and to all of creations. For me, spirituality is our connection with one another as human beings, as well as our connections with land, water, air, our animal and insect relatives. Again, those microscopic relatives, our ancestors, the generations to come, the stars, the planet, literally all of the cosmos and all of creation and everything that's metaphysical as well. Like I say, energies spirits, entities, however people understand them. There are so many different ways of understanding this. And oftentimes, a lot of religions are just a way to kind of articulate that spirituality, to put it into a framework that people can understand and engage with because they understand their relationships that way. But again, they're not always one in the same. And And spirituality to me is far beyond that only and that people can be spiritual without necessarily 
having to ascribe to a particular religion. I think that's an important place to start just to understand that, you know, and and reassure (laughs) instructors and educators that this doesn't mean that you're bringing in this one particular approach. It's really this much larger and deeper thing that people can then understand through their respective religions and ways of understanding the world. For me, again, this is so much about land (laughs) and connection with land and place and spirituality is about that relationship and interconnection with land and its relationship with our well-being, which was part of how I opened the conversation. You know, when you asked me about some of the practices that I engage in for wellness, immediately I identified it's so connected to land because of that self-healing mechanism of the land. And that's what's beautiful about nature, about land and water and air is it's always self-healing. You know, I've heard the teaching multiple times from elders and knowledge holders in different places about how if human beings were to kill ourselves off (laughs) through the ways our ways of living that the earth would still be here and that the earth would heal itself and the earth does heal itself it has an inherent balancing mechanism so as human beings we also have that really for me wellness in the classroom is about tapping into those inherent balancing mechanisms. It's about tapping into relationship with land and place. I've worked with a lot of educators, a lot of psychologists, a lot of health professionals, you know, people in various fields who are not Indigenous. And a lot of times I get questions about, well, what am I supposed to do? What about me, right? I'm not Indigenous, so I can't turn to these particular ways of doing things. And what I say always is that each of us has a right to relationship with land. We all have it inherently. Our bones are made of the land. Our blood is the water. We don't have a choice, actually, but to be connected with land. And so really, it's again, acknowledging that relationship. And also, always encourage people when possible, and this isn't always possible for various reasons, and that's okay because there's medicine in everything. Nothing is a deficit. Part of our Indigenous knowledges, as I've been taught, are that everybody has gifts and that every experience is a gift. So I just want to put that in there as a precursor, you know, to say that for those who are able to connect with and learn about their ancestries, wherever they come from, whether it's indigenous to this continent or to other continents, ultimately we are all indigenous to some place. It's just really a matter of how many generations removed we are from those indigenous ways of living. For some, either way, everybody is connected back to places or a place. Some of us have ancestors from all over, like myself, Being Métis and being mixed, I also have ancestors that come from Europe. Now, it's important for us to connect with that, like I say, when we're able to. But really, it starts with those educators connecting in with who they are and who they are in relation. And where do they experience their sense of spirituality? 
where do they experience a sense of connection with land? A lot of people, especially living in Treaty 7 territories, will talk about going to the mountains, right? I mean, oh my goodness, why wouldn't you? <laughs> They're just amazing. Or maybe there's another place that they go, the foothills or to the badlands. The land will call them and they go there for a reason. There's medicine that's there. All of this to say, again, it's kind of giving the background to the answer to your question, that really we can bring land and wellness practices into the classroom in many different ways. And I've done that throughout my work with educators going into classrooms and again, just sharing some of this information for educators to even understand, you know, if they don't already, or if they hadn't thought of it, or like you said, you know, we get colonized even through our training, but it's sometimes just as simple as taking the students outside and taking time to sit there in the grass, having the students notice the smells, the sights, like just really engaging in a way that is present, that is mindful, really focusing on their relationships. One of the teachings that I've received from my mentors is that everything is animate, everything has spirit. And so we acknowledge that there's life all around us, even in the stones. And so when people aren't able to get out to the land, some classrooms are right smack in the middle of an inner city area where there's not even a tree anywhere nearby, we can bring the land into the classroom. One way of doing that is bringing in stones, for instance, which are our oldest ancestors in the physical world. So I've done this a lot throughout different ages and grades, and even with my university students as well, is bringing them the stones, sharing those teachings that the stones are our oldest ancestors, that they're ancient and they have so much wisdom, so much knowledge. And one of the things I'll sometimes do to encourage that reconnection with the stone is I'll just have the students and the teachers, I always get them to do it too, <laughs> to hold the stone in their hands, take a moment and just see what the stone shows them or brings to them. The stone might bring forward an image of a relative. I've had that happen before where someone has seen their grandmother who's passed away suddenly comes forward. Or I, I had little ones before who said that they saw when that stone was formed by a volcano. So they saw the volcano erupting, right? Or they saw a fish swimming past their stone, that at some point in time, that stone had been in the water. But it's really about getting our minds out of the way and just connecting with the spirit of that stone and allowing the spirit of that stone to show us whatever it shows us and knowing that there's medicine in there for that. In that way, we're able to receive medicine from the stone. And maybe it's just a feeling of calmness or maybe it's even a feeling of anxiety. And that feeling of anxiety, again, to go back to what I shared earlier, is information. It's not a deficit. There's not something wrong with the person. It's coming forward to say, oh, there's something to learn here. There's some medicine in this. Because if I'm having anxiety while I'm holding this stone, what is that coming forward to tell me? And so there's a piece of medicine that's needed there. And then that person can ask into that. 
So it can be all kinds of things, but it's just trusting what's coming forward. And the other thing that I really do with the little ones and with my older students that I have in university is encourage them to put things into the stones, you know, and I use this in counseling as well that acknowledging that relative and the strength of the land is they can take it. You know, I was talking before about how we pick things up from people. So say in a family and little ones do this all the time, especially they're just sponges. And so they'll pick up, say mom has a lot of anger. That little one is going to take some of mom's anger so that mom has less anger. It comes back to physics. That energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can be transformed. It can be transferred. That little one picks up some of that anger. Mom has less anger so that mom can do more mom things. But then if that little one doesn't have a way to give that anger to the land, then they might end up carrying that. And they could carry that through their whole life. And that's what we see happening in the wake of colonialism and attempted genocide is historically, and to this day, of course, as well, Indigenous people's have practices that are intended to release the things that we pick up. One of the things that I often talk about in my work is just this reminder that, for example, trauma is a part of nature, that you cannot avoid trauma in the world. I mean, there's always a hurricane or a tornado. These things happened before contact. A lot of it was in relation with land. Someone might lose a limb or, or something to frostbite. But either way, different traumas can happen. And we have ways of dealing with that. We have ways of letting go of these things that we experience. So, you know, one example I can share is the sweat lodge, which some people may have heard of or be familiar with. But that's a, a tradition of some nations that involves being in the heat and having the stones and having the water, having the air, as well as other aspects of the ceremony that I won't share at this time, help to remove some of what we're carrying. And even something as simple as cold water dunks. We see that in cultures across the world as well. That's a traditional way of letting things go with the land, of cleansing ourselves. And we also know that Again, I, I alluded to my Scandinavian ancestry earlier that uh, they use saunas and cold water as well, right? So we see these things across the world, these practices, when we go back to them, that we have ways to move whatever we are carrying from all of our relatives out of our bodies and into the land, because the land can take care of that and heal that. As I mentioned before, you know, there's this inherent balancing mechanism. Going back to the stones, it's like we can give those stones whatever we're carrying. And what I've done before is, is bringing the children into circle. Of course, because this is part of my practice, I would bring in the smudge, right? And the appropriate smudge to the place that I'm in and in accordance with my teachings. And typically that's been sage, but this is going to differ based on where people are located and who the local nations are. But I would bring in the smudge and that has particular teachings with it in relation with land, in relation with the metaphysical, and then have the children in circle. The circle allows us to be in relationship with each other. This is also how I teach, by the way. 
as an instructor, I do not allow my students to be in desks <laughs> or at tables. We sit in circle with nothing in between us because that encourages that relationship. And it can be really uncomfortable for people sometimes. But thankfully, especially with younger kids, this is still very natural to them because they're very connected with natural law. They're very connected with original teachings, regardless of where their ancestries are from. And so sitting in circle is natural. So we come into circle, we have the smudge, and then each of them is given a stone. And I will share in my experience that in some classrooms, a lot of teachers have had anxiety about the children being given stones. They were very, very worried that they were going to use them to harm each other, you know, or be throwing them at each other or throwing them and breaking a window, things like that. And so I listened to their concerns, validated them. And, and I said, trust me, <laughs> because we're connecting with that relationship with the stone again. And when the children start out by listening to the stone, by doing that exercise where they let the stone's wisdom come to them, and they remember that relationship explicitly, then there is a respect there. The teachings that I share that these are our grandfathers and grandmothers, because those are the teachings I've received. And you're not going to throw your grandma, you know? Um, and so they really tend to treasure them and take care of them. And so, you know, we have them hold the stones and and we go around the circle and offer an opportunity for each child to share if they like what they are carrying with them that morning, what's on their mind, if they have intentions, or we can call them prayers, but we don't have to call them prayers in the classroom setting, right? I understand that that term comes with some baggage. And so we can just say that they can share a little bit about their hopes for their families and friends, or what's going on for them if they want to, but that they don't need to share anything, right? It's very open, they can pass. But giving that opportunity for children to let go of what it is that they're carrying and directly encouraging them to put that into the stone. So if someone in their family is sick and they share, then they can give that to that stone and that stone will help and will take care of it. And then those hopes for that person's healing, that child's intentions are then put into the universe as well. In my experience, this very simple circle <laughs> And the very simple work with stones is so powerful because this isn't why we're doing it, but an indirect benefit of it is that it really supports the development of empathy. A lot of the classrooms I've worked in, they might have a lot of violence between the students. There are students that are really shut down. And when you give this opportunity for sharing, another child who's sitting there and listening can say, oh my goodness, that person's mom is in the hospital. And then maybe they won't punch them later that day. You know, like it really encourages that empathy and that relationality. And it's just an inherent part of the work. And so there are a lot of ways that this can be done. And if teachers aren't comfortable with this themselves yet, because it can be hard to be comfortable with this unless someone has nurtured it within themselves. So for myself, as someone who has this relationship with rocks, this is no problem. But for someone who, you know, kind of still just understands rocks as rocks and isn't quite there yet, then I hope 
that in the wake of the TRC and the work that's being done, that they will have community resources that they can connect with to support them. And we really need to see that happening more and more. I hope that we are. I know that there are Indigenous education teams that are available in certain school districts, but even just connecting with Indigenous organizations, that teacher might even have a friend that gives things to rocks, who knows, right? But just really doing it through relationship and hopefully being able to bring in elders or knowledge holders or others that can help to facilitate that learning. Because from an Indigenous perspective and and the way that we do things, it's done through mentorship and through intergenerational mentorship. We learn through experiencing and we learn through doing. And so if someone's not comfortable doing this kind of thing at first, bringing the land into the classroom, you know, to promote wellness and balance, then hopefully they have someone they can bring in until they do feel comfortable. There's just so much (laughs) I could go on and on, but that's just some of what comes up for me. One thing that you said was so profound. I mean, everything that you said was so profound, but one connection that was sparked for me was what you said about empathy and that interconnectedness. And I think Uh, as a teacher who's tried to teach empathy and and even push myself to learn in that area, I think if we don't learn for ourselves and teach our students about the interconnectedness of everything, it's really hard to have empathy because empathy is really about opening your eyes to how people are interconnected and all of those different connections that might be affecting them and, and understanding that. That's incredibly helpful. And I also chuckled at when you said you won't throw your grandma. I think that's, it's also like a really beautiful way for our students, whether they're young or adults, or even for ourselves to just learn about our relationships differently. When we think about our relationships to the land, not just to people. Well, I think I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. And I'm sure our listeners could listen to you for hours and hours and hours. And And we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much once more, Dr. Carly Fellner, for sharing your expertise with the podcast listeners. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for part one of our conversation with Dr. Carly Fellner as part of the series Conversations on School Health, a series collaboration between Everactive Schools and the Workland School of Education. Special thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at Everactive Schools, or you can visit our website at everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, the pod class is dismissed. Dismissed.